Welcome to Cultural Technologies. I'm Bernard Dionysus Gideon. This is our first episode for a few months. Uh, I'm happy to be back. I took a much needed, uh, much enjoyed summer vacation. Before going to today's episode, I'd like to give you a preview of what's coming down the pipe in the next few months. They include episodes on Michel Foucault and his concept of biopolitics, episodes on visual culture, uh, including an interview with the cultural historian Lynn Spiegel concerning her last book on uh, television and uh, the Museum of Modern Art. And also, I'm hoping to have a few episodes on new or contemporary German media theory, a topic which is close to my heart since I, uh, I live in Berlin, Germany. I work at the uh, Institute for Cultural Studies, founded, well, I'd say at least home for a long time to the German media theorist uh, Friedrich Kittler. So I'm looking forward to having a few lectures and interviews about what's going on here today. As for today's episode, it is a sequel to an episode from uh, last spring. You'll recall we had an interview with the political theorist um, John McCormick concerning his book on Carl Schmitt, and particularly Carl Schmitt's critique of liberalism. Today's episode constitutes something of a retort or a response to Carl Schmitt's critique of liberalism. So uh, today's episode features a bootleg lecture, a recording of Jürgen Habermas from a few years ago, at uh, New York University in New York City, and the title of the talk was The Political, The Rational Meaning of a Questionable Inheritance of Political Theology. In this talk, uh, Habermas recognizes, um, you know, with some reservation, aspects of Schmitt's critique of contemporary modern society, namely its tendency to slip into a kind of malaise where forms of, say, um, community and affinity uh, are gradually broken down. And part of what, what Habermas's question is, can we blame this on liberalism? He notes, he notes that um, a number of political theorists and philosophers in the last 50 years, including Hannah Arendt, Jean-Luc Nancy, Jacques Derrida, Giorgio Gambin, have found in Schmitt's critique of liberalism uh, something useful for reimagining our contemporary political society. Habermas has a kind of retort to that, part of which is that uh, he says that what uh, Habermas, uh, pardon me, Habermas says that what Schmidt associates with liberalism is actually um, uh, forms of secularization that uh, precede and predate the modern liberal state. Um, and on that basis, Habermas suggests we might want to question uh, Schmidt's really harsh. Um, critique and opposition to liberalism, right? So this obviously belongs to Habermas's broader project of actually trying to, um, say, preserve and restore a kernel of rationality that uh, many other contemporary uh, philosophers, particularly those who are, who are labeled uh, postmodern, for better or for worse, um, they have rejected. So um, that's a little introduction. Uh, because Habermas can sometimes be a little bit difficult to understand, I've also included a PDF uh, of his talk. And um, it's not actually a, a, a literal transcription, but rather an excerpt from the book Power of Religion in the Public Sphere, which also features uh, um, essays by Judith Butler, Charles Taylor, and some other really top-notch contemporary thinkers. So uh, if you're at all interested in today's talk, um, or in today's episode, I strongly encourage you to go get a copy of that book. It is available from Columbia University Press. And now uh, for the podcast, Jürgen Habermas on The Political, 
the rational meaning of a questionable inheritance of political theology. Tradition could not dismiss the evocation 
of an axis of evil as a curiosity. Many people took Bush's statement in the speech on November 10, 2001, before the Assembly of the United Nations very seriously. History, he said, has an author who fills time and eternity with his purpose. We know that evil is real, but good will prevail against it. In both instances, a connection was made between politics and an order of things interpreted either in cosmological or in theological terms. From this perspective, political events are embedded in a comprehensive, in the broader sense, religious world order. Even Hegel, as you remember, still criticized the modern separation of politics and religion as a monstrous blunder of our times. Now, a century later, a decidedly less liberal Carl Schmitt celebrated the demise of this liberal achievement, separation of state and religion. Uh, he celebrated it in his political theology in the following words. We have come to recognize that the political is the total. That's cancer. In November 1933, a contemporary audience could not fail to pick up on the positive reference to Hitler's total state. The concept of the political alludes to an encompassing whole infused with religious connotations. Already a year earlier, Karlschmidt had explained that the political is not just one subsystem alongside others, such as the economy, the family, education, or culture. It is rather linked to a transcendent power that secures the unity and integration of the community as a whole. And in his notes on this same notorious text, Karlschmidt, on the conception of the political, Leo Strauss is also impressed by the dimension of the political that reaches into the religious and metaphysical dimensions. With this, Strauss is not thinking of a political theology concerning God's intervention in history, but rather of the truths of classical political philosophy Plato and Aristotle had answered the questions to the just society, uh, of the just society and the good life from the metaphysical uh, perspective of a nature conceived in teleological terms. In this respect, uh, Greek political philosophy, like Confucianism, for instance, shares with political theology the orientation to a dimension in which political processes are subordinated to a cosmic or divine nomos. 
foremost, Neil Strauss, encouragement. The political is a binding source for all authority and an inescapable fact. However, the era when philosophy could elevate itself above the sciences belongs to the past. Today, the social sciences lay claim to the political system as their subject matter. They deal with politics, that is, with the struggle for and the exercise of power, and also with policies, that is, with the strategies pursued by the political actors in different political fields. Today, the political no longer seems to constitute a scientific topic alongside politics and policies. Why then bother with a concept that seems to retain a clear descriptive meaning only for the historian. The political at best designates a symbolic field in which the early civilizations first form an image of themselves, quite importantly. As a reminder, the concept of the political leads us back to the origins of state-organized societies, such as the ancient empires of, say, Mesopotamia or Egypt, which, uh, in which social integration had been partly transferred from kinship structures to the hierarchical forms of royal bureaucracies. The emerging complex of law and political power gave rights to a totally new functional requirement, namely the legitimation of political authority. It is not a given that one person or a group of persons can make decisions that are collectively binding on all. Only by establishing a convincing connection of legal and political power with religious beliefs and practices, could the rulers be assured that the people abide by the law. While the legal system is backed by the sanctioning power of the state, political authority in turn depends on the legitimizing force of a law perceived as sacred law. The, the monarch's judicial power and its sacred order um, uh, is uh, owed to mythical narratives that now fuse, uh, that now fuse the ruling uh, dynasties with the divine. At the same time, old ritual practices became transformed into state rituals through which the society as a whole represents itself in the figure of the ruler. Hence, this symbolic dimension is a manifestation of that fusion of politics and religion to which 
the concept of the therefore interwoven fluids. Now, the connectivity sees itself mirrored in the rule of self-representation as a political community that intentionally, that means deliberately, achieves its social integration through the exercise of political power. In this political self-understanding of the polity, the locus of control shifts more to collective action for the first time in history. Certainly, we owe the first conceptions of, of the political only to the normal doctrines of Israel, China, and Greece, and more generally, to the metaphysical and religious worldviews that were emerging at the actual age. Once this transformation has taken place, the political ruler can no longer be perceived as a manifest embodiment of the divine, but only as its human representation. From now on, he, as a human person, is also subordinated to the normals in the light of which all human action must be measured. Because the actual worldviews make both legitimation and the critique of political uh, uh, authority possible at the same time, the political in the ancient empires was marked by an ambivalent tension between religious and political powers, as you know. On the one hand, the state power pursued religious policies aimed at securing the consent of religious forms and institutions. On the other hand, religious beliefs preserved a moment of intangibility on account of their relevance for individual salvation. Though the religiously backed belief in legitimacy can well be manipulated and has been manipulated all the time, it is never totally at the disposition of politics. The precarious balance can be studied between the political power and the uh, uh, representatives of uh, uh, religious uh, traditions providing legitimation. The precarious balance can be studied deep into the European Middle Ages in the relationship between the emperor and the pope. Now, the bold historical jump I just made hints at the extensive time span during which talk of the political kept a clear meaning. I cannot discuss the improbable constellation that made possible both the unique synthesis of theology and Greek metaphysics and the rise of Pauline Christianity to become the Roman state religion, which in turn called forth the political theology of Augustine.
only on the basis of these historical connections can we explain the concept of the political which Leo Strauss and Carl Schmitt were able to pick up and develop in quite different ways. Strauss took his orientation from Greek political philosophy, Schmidt from Augustine's political theology that had left deep traces in the political history of the Christian West. However, under the changed condition of the modern period, these two traditional conceptions of the political had lost their setting in life as it were. To be sure, neither Strauss's nor Schmidt's treatment of these historical models, the Greek and the Christian one, can be described as naive. They both developed their conception through, critical, through a critical encounter with the Leviathan of Hobbes, who already, of course, saw the emergence of the modern European uh, uh, system of sovereign states in the modern sense before his eyes. Whereas Leo Strauss remains convinced that the legitimating power of classical natural law can be restored in one way or the other, even in modernity, Carl Schmitt develops a new and provocative concept of the political based on motives of some reluctant modernism. He wants uh, to preserve in the modern context of secularized mass democracy both the authoritarian kernel of sovereign power and its legitimizing relation to a Christian reading of sacred history. There's no need to go into the details of this clerical fascist conception because it is not the project itself, but rather its motivation that still deserves our interest. I think it directs our intention to a normative dimension of politics which remain essential for citizens of a liberal state too. In Schmidt's view, liberalism, of course, is a force that robs politics of its significance for society as a whole, on the one hand through the emancipation of a functionally differentiated society from the overarching thing of medieval times, the overarching structure of a political frame, and on the other hand, by decoupling the state from a privatized religion that has lost its thing and therewith the important function of authorizing political power. That's behind the criticism of, uh, of liberalism uh, in Karl Schmitt. In view of these plans, towards what Schmitt called 
the neutralization of politics, the constitutional revolutions, and the end of the 18th century symbolized for Schmidt a catastrophic, but at the same time irreversible, caesura in world history. They ratify the secularization of state power as a consequence of the self-empowerment of democratic citizens. Liberal constitutions disperse the sovereignty once concentrated in the person of the ruler and within the liberal states, the substance of sovereign power further on dissolves in the asset mass of continuing democratic law making. For Schmidt, it is not only the challenge of the confessional split and the fact of religious pluralism that calls for a secular, secular court for a secular state authority which is capable of keeping equal distance from any particular religion and of treating the claims of all religious community impartially. Even apart from that, the self-empowerment of citizens is in itself the blasphemic act that strips the legitimation of political power of its meta-social character, in other words, of uh, its reference to the warranting force of a transcendent authority operating from beyond society. Even the Constitution emanates from the people, from the people's own resolve to ensure in a voluntary association of free and equal legal subjects that human dignity of each citizen enjoys the equal respect of all. Now, this break with the traditional pattern of legitimation raises in fact the question of whether the move towards justification of constitutional essentials in the secular terms of popular uh, sovereignty and human rights close off the dimension of the political, thereby rendering the concept of the political with its religious connotations obsolete. Or does the locus of the political merely shifts from the level of the state to the democratic opinion and information uh, in civil society. Against both Kashmir and Leo Strauss, we might ask, why should the collective identity of a political community not find an impersonal embodiment in the normative dimension of a democratic constitution? And what would the revised conception of the political then mean for the relation between religion and politics in societies like ours. Carl Schmitt, Carl Schmitt's resentment against liberalism is explained by the fact that he conceives both the secular character of state power and the democratic character of the constitution as resulting 
from an atheist act of rebellion against God. The self, I mean, he had not the American, but the French Revolution, of course, uh, before his eyes. Um, the self-empowerment of men appears as manifestation of the power of the Antichrist. I think that a similar effect smolders even in the more unconspicuous impulse, impulse to save some public religious foundation for democracy and the rule of law, and that impulse might trigger deflationary accounts of the historical rupture between uh, the meta-social legitimation of the past and a justification of constitutional principles within the limits of uh, a uh, uh, reason uh, common to all. This is, I suspect, uh, also uh, raising some questions between my friend Chuck and me tonight. Admittedly, there is a touch of paradox in the liberal constitution, which is at least partially designed for the purpose of granting citizens equal religious liberties, and yet defense of any particular religious influence on enforceable political decisions. The very same persons who are legally empowered to practice their religion and to lead a pious life are supposed to participate as citizens in providing the input into a democratic process, the output of which must be cleansed from any specifically religious contents. This paradox finds one response in a strictly nicest political culture like uh, the French one. However, as long as religion remains a vital force within civil society, we are reminded of the fact that we must not confound the secularization of the state with that of civil society. Uh, apart from feasibility, the, sec the secular constitution itself, I think, provides some normative reasons for why we must not cut off the influence of religion from the political public sphere. I cannot think of a better argument than the role that uh, persons like Cornel West play in this country. John Rawls is the first political philosopher who systematically takes into account the relevance of religious doctrines uh, and communities. Uh, for both, the founding of a secular constitution and the democratic process within such a secular uh, frame. Rawls explains the meaning of the political uh, which has shifted into civil society 
in terms of a political concept of justice that grounds principles of fair uh, cooperation among free and equal citizens. That means in contrast to the contrastarian tradition, always retains a certain role for religion even in the justification of uh, a secular constitution. That is the story on the overlapping consensus. Uh, I would have liked to say something to that because I think that uh, always makes here an important argument, but an argument that finally doesn't really carry over into an important uh, role of uh, religion in the very justification of a secular constitution, but only in its stabilization. I mean, it's necessary in order to establish in, in a pluralist society. Um, now, the interaction with religion is even more uh, importantly reflected in the public role that religion plays within the public sphere once such an overlapping consensus on constitutional essentials are reached. All says Stur up a lively debate with his explanation of the proper use of public reason, which any liberal state must expect from religious and non-religious citizens alike. Now in this debate, I have suggested that all citizens should be free to decide whether they want to use religious language in the public sphere. In this case, they have to accept, however, that the potential truth content of religious utterances must be translated into a generally accessible language before they can find its way onto the agenda of parliaments, courts, or administrative bodies. Uh, now, this proposal achieves the liberal goal of ensuring that all legally enforceable decisions can be formulated and justified in a universally accessible language without having to restrict the polyphonic diversity of public voices at its very source, namely in civil society and the public sphere. To be sure, the monolingual, if I may say so, contributions of religious citizens then depend on the translational efforts of cooperative fellow citizens if they are not to fall on deaf ears. But religious citizens who regard themselves as loyal members of a constitutional democracy must accept the translation proviso as the price to be paid for the neutrality of the state authority towards competing worldviews and uh, uh, ideological camps. For secular citizens, the same 
ethics of citizenship entails a complementary burden. By the duty of reciprocal accountability to all citizens, including religious ones, they are morally obliged not to publicly dismiss religious contributions to political opinion and will formation as noise or mere nonsense from the outset. Secular and religious citizens must, in their public use of reason, uh, stay at eye level. The contributions of one side supposedly is no less important for a democratic process than those of the other side. Thus, a quite demanding epistemic mindset that cannot be legally imposed is assumed by such an ethics of democratic uh, citizenship. It is assumed on both sides. Whether the expectation the expectation associated with this will be fulfilled in fact depends on complementary learning processes. From the religious side, the public use of reason calls for a reflexive consciousness that relates itself to other religions, leaves decisions concerning factual, mundane knowledge to the institutionalized sciences and makes the egalitarian premises of the morality of human rights compatible with uh, their own articles of faith. Overlapping consensus. On the other hand, the discursive confrontation with religious citizens endowed with equal rights demands from the secular side a similar reflection on the limits of both metaphysical reason for the insight that vibrant world religions may be bearers of post contents in the sense of suppressed or untapped moral intuitions is by no means a given for the secular portion of the population either. Let me summarize the concept of the political. Remains a dubious heritage as long as political theology attempts to preserve its religious connotations for the legitimation of whatever kind of state authority. In view of the fact of pluralism, it is hard to see on which normative grounds the historical step towards a neutral or secularized state authority could be rejected. Less questionable, however, is a revised concept of the political geared to the potentially inspiring contributions of religious communities in the process of democratic legitimation within civil society. The concept is useful for capturing the impact that religion can still 
have for the self-understanding of all citizens of a secular state. That is my point. As long as religion continues to play a vital role in the informal communication networks of the public sphere, all citizens must be aware of the fact that democratic legitimation in the mode of deliberative politics is supposed to spring from the reciprocal recognition of a mutual interaction between reason-giving religious and non-religious citizens alike. Do I have some more? But then why should we stick to the pompous concept of the political given its religious association with the sovereign power, which was in the meantime fortunately disembodied, dispersed, and dispersed and proceduralized, uh, thus leaving back an empty place at best. Therefore, I think a revised concept can still fulfill a job as part of a normative political theory which takes the performative view of citizens who respond to the question of what binds them together uh, with their fellow citizens as members of a democratic community. Perhaps it is just this moment of the intentional social integration by political means that is reviving memories of the old uses of the term at a time when the decentering and centrifugal forces of a functional differentiation of society are reaching into the global dimension. In the welfare state, democracies of the latter half of the 20th century, thus under the conditions of embodied capitalism, politics was still able to wield a steering influence on the diverging subsystems and to put a halt into the tendencies toward social disintegration. Politics could succeed in these efforts within the framework of the nation state. The political capacities for conspicuously influence social integration are becoming now dangerously restricted under conditions of a globalized uh, capitalism. More than anything else, the erosion of confidence in the communicatively generated power of collective action and the atrophy, and the atrophy of normative sensitiv sensitiv sensibilities reinforce an already smoldering skepticism concerning the enlightened self-understanding of modernity, mistakenly so, in my opinion, though not completely unjustified. In the waves of a multicultural world society, the secular base 
of reflecting the reason coming to all, constitute the sole or the wavering flank of a deliberative politics as the remaining source of legitimacy. However, the defeatism concerning reason and warning in secular thought itself, and it inspires doubts over whether the Enlightenment can generate the motives, the motivations for preserving the normative content of modernity out of its own resources. It is these doubts that led me back to the ambivalent concept of the political and led to the religious connotations of that concept a specific meaning. Non-fundamentalist religious communities can function as a spur in the public use of reason of democratic citizens precisely when the sensibility for normative questions is decaying. Thank you. That was Jürgen Habermas speaking uh, in 2010 on The Political, The Rational Meaning of a Questionable Inheritance of Political Theology. I provided a link on the website uh, to the conference where he spoke, uh, where you can also hear lectures by Judith Butler, um, by Charles Taylor, and also by Cornel West on this and related themes. So uh, you can collect the whole series if you go there and press play. Um, Jürgen Habermas seems to get a little bit of a bad rap for his belief in something like rationality, hence the title of this talk, The Rational Meaning of a Questionable Inheritance of Political Theology. Um, I think a lot of the critiques of Habermas are, um, let's say, they're well-founded and not entirely unfair, uh, but too often they serve as a kind of substitute for people actually reading and engaging with what he said. So I uh, was glad to be able to present this lecture for you, and I hope you'll consider not only going to the website, uh, where you can find the other lectures that were held uh, at this conference, uh, but you'll also consider getting a copy of the book entitled Power of Religion in the Public Sphere, which features not only a revised version of Habermas's uh, talk, but also the other aforementioned uh, lectures by uh, Judith Butler and others. So thanks for tuning in. And with luck, we'll be back in the next few weeks for another episode on cultural technologies.